You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. chapter 5. We're, dump, we're uh, jumping back into that book today. We took a break for several weeks leading up to Christmas and then over New Year as well. We looked at some passages in Isaiah and then Jake Osborne preached a wonderful sermon which I hope to mention in a little bit uh, last Sunday from the book of Colossians. Um, but we're going to be back in the, the book of John today, John chapter 5. And uh, I was thinking of a story this week uh, that has to do with this text. I was thinking of a job that I had for one school year, because that was about the, the only length of time I could take it, because it was a very physical, uh, demanding job, and I'm not the strongest guy that there is. But I worked for UPS uh, loading trucks for one year uh, in the city of Louisville. My job was to come in very, very, very early, almost borderline late in the night, uh, to have trucks loaded uh, for men and women that were driving to go out uh, at 8 a.m. when they came in to go around Louisville and deliver the box. And uh, we had a break time every morning. That was at a very specific time. It was for about 15 minutes. That was the, it was not for about, it was exactly 15 minutes to the second. And everybody had to take it at exactly the same time. There would be a horn that would go off when it was break time to know that break was starting. And then there would be one uh, that would go off when it was time to get back to work again. And uh, this, this stuck in my memory because around, I think it was around Christmas time, we started getting all sorts of packages, and uh, my part of the conveyor belt was getting very backed up. And I was thinking to myself, I want to be uh, a good worker. I want to work through my break. I, wanna, uh, I don't need to go to the bathroom. I don't need a snack. I'm just going to keep blowing through this and uh, try to get this stuff done for these drivers so, so they're not mad at me, but also so they can get out uh, on their shift. And I remember, I don't even remember the guy's name, which is terrible, but I remember I remember my supervisor uh, walking down this long uh, platform to me, and he informed me uh, that I was not allowed to do that. And it, it struck in my mind that time that I had forgotten that I had joined a workers' union. It was the first time that I had done that, and they, the workers' union heads had negotiated with the company to, to have these break times, and they were very rigid about it. You cannot work during this window of time. It's a mandatory break time for every employee, and I thought that was kind of silly, but I didn't mind taking the break after all, so I take the break, and, but the, the supervisor, I remember he has red hair and glasses, I remember watching him, uh, he, would, he was allowed to work during break time because he wasn't part of the union, management and upper people uh, in the company weren't part of the union, so they had freedom to work during that break time, which I appreciated that he at least wasn't trying to have us be lazy or encouraged, he was trying to help us. Um, but it was very interesting because he was a fellow seminary student just like me, but he was allowed to work during this time when I was shut down from it uh, just because of who we were and our role in the company. And that story came to mind because you'll see as we read through this story in a minute from John chapter 5, it, it culminates and it all drives towards uh, this idea of Jesus working, doing a work of healing, healing a man, on a day of the week where work was forbidden for everyone else. Uh, but he, by the end of the story, is claiming he has a right to do it, uh, that he has full freedom because of who he is, even though he's a fellow Jew just like them, that he has freedom to work when they are called to rest on that day that they would call the Sabbath. It's a fascinating story. I think John included it uh, out of the many, many things he saw Jesus do and heard him teach because of the day that it happened on. 
that it happened on the Sabbath day. And that be, also, I think John included it because of the conversations that, that flowed out of it, which is the second half of this chapter, which we'll look at the next two weeks after this. But for today, we're just going to look at the event itself, what happened on that Sabbath day and what uh, Jesus said about himself to justify working on the Sabbath and doing things when everybody else was called to rest. And so in a minute, we're going to read this whole thing and then we'll walk back through it. But if you weren't here in the fall or if just Christmas food and naps and New Year's and stuff have, have made, made your brain forget what we've looked at in the Gospel of John thus far, I just want to real quick recap first four chapters. We see John recording the life of Jesus and his ministry is starting up as an adult and he's starting to have disciples come around him slowly but surely. Uh, people are coming to hear him and listen to him. Uh, he's baptized by John the Baptist. He, he starts doing signs and miracles. If you've been here, we saw how he turned water into wine at a wedding. That was his first sign that John recorded. And then at the end of chapter 4, right before what we're reading now, uh, he had healed a, a boy from a long distance, a, an official's son who was very, very sick. Jesus had just spoken from long distance and healed this boy of his sickness. And there's largely been good response to Jesus so far. People, at least as John records it, have been largely encouraged or at least intrigued by Jesus. They're starting to believe in him and follow him. But this is where things start to turn in the story. This John chapter 5 is where you're going to see people are explicitly talked about as starting to oppose Jesus, starting to persecute him, even starting to plot to kill him by the end of the story that we read today. And so this is where things uh, seemingly turn in the story of Jesus. And I think he does it on purpose. He brings it upon himself on purpose. And so we're going to read this, John 5, 1 through 18, because uh, it's really one story in itself. I didn't want to chop it up too much. But I'm going to read through the story, and then we'll walk back through it and see what the Lord would teach us today as people who live almost 2,000 years after this. So follow along with uh, me in John 5. Yours may have some different words, uh, things like that, but it should have the basic same story. But John records this for us. He says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And we, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, this is sort of a rhetorical question, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, and nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, 
because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is a fascinating, fascinating story with much that we can learn. Um, I trust that God, um, by his spirit, will, will teach us and challenge us in, in many ways as we walk back uh, through this story. But the main point that I want to uh, say, flowing out of this text, and I want to keep bringing around to us this morning is this. It's a very simple thing that most of you already know and would agree with, but that we need to remember over and over. And I, was, I would articulate it this way, is that Christ alone has the power to fix what is broken within us. That Christ alone has the power to fix what is broken within us. And I think in the beginning of this story, I would emphasize it this way, that Christ has the power to fix what is broken. Uh, that, that's what we see very first, just setting everything else aside, that Christ has the power to fix what is broken. You, you get some of the details and setting of this story right from the get-go, the start of chapter 5. You see things... Like the first verse says that this was during a feast of the Jews. Uh, there was a few of these every year uh, that the Jewish people would have. That John didn't find it necessary to tell us which one it was. Uh, but they, there, there was these celebrations where many Jewish people would come to the city of Jerusalem and celebrate in different ways or follow certain rules and things that God told them to do during this, these times. And so there was, this story took place during one of those feasts. And so it's in, also in the city of Jerusalem. So there would have been a lot of people in the city. There would have been uh, more than normal amount of people in the city at this time. But what John seems to indicate is more important is that it happened on the Sabbath day. Uh, not just that it happened during the feast. That sort of seems somewhat irrelevant. But the fact that it happened on the Sabbath day is very pivotal and important in the story. And we'll see why in a few minutes. But you also see in verse 2 that this happens next to a pool uh, that is called Bethesda. It's, it's near a gate in the, at the wall of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and this pool had sort of developed a reputation. That, that, and you can even pick it up in the story a little bit by this man's answer when Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed. There was this belief, and this, this really would happen, where the waters would sometimes in this pool just be stirred up. That, that Maybe there was bubbles that would come up. We don't know exactly what was causing it. Some people thought it was an angel who would routinely come down and make these waters move. But the belief and why there is a multitude of invalids by this pool, uh, it's not just because it was a place they liked to hang out. They believed that when those waters would be stirred up, that the first person who would get into the pool would be healed of whatever their ailment was, whether it was blindness or lameness or some other disability. There was this belief that if I could be the first one in, if I could be that fortunate one to be the first one in the water, then I'll be healed of what has been ailing me. And so that's why there's a multitude. There's this crowd there, it even says later in the story, uh, that there's tons and tons of people around this pool hoping that they could be the one to get in. Or maybe there's loved ones there who are hoping when the wa if the water was to be stirred up that day that they could help their loved one get into the pool. It would have been a crazy scene. I've tried to imagine what that would have been like. But there, there's this crowd. It's on the Sabbath day, this day of rest for God's people. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And he comes to this pool. And amongst this crowd of people, this multitude of people, he singles out in verse 5, one man. Uh, and he comes and he speaks to him and he's going to do something monumental in this one man's 
life. And what, what does he see? When, who is this person? Like when he comes up and talks to him, what is he like? There's some things we can piece together here. Verse well, 1, we don't even know his name. We don't know a whole lot about him. But you can see in verse 7, he's just referred to as the sick man. Uh, that's as close as we can get to a name or title for this guy. But he undoubtedly was one of the oldest people there. Uh, you noted in this story in verse 5, it says that he had been an invalid for 38 years. That's longer than I've been alive. That's longer than many of us in this room have been alive. That this man had been unable to walk or at least to walk with any sort of strength and steadiness about him for 38 years. And so in a day and age where their lifespans would have been much shorter than now, he would have been one of the oldest people there, if not the oldest. And his, his, his sickness seems, based on what Jesus tells him later when he meets him back up in the temple, it seems like his sickness somehow was actually related to sin in his life. We learn later in John that that's not always the case. That's not even often the case, that sickness is caused by sin. But sometimes it is. You see that throughout the Bible. At times, sometimes sickness and ailments are related to sin. And it seems that that's the case with this man. Uh, that there was something we don't know what. That, that somehow sin had been involved in leading this man to be lame. And le- leading him to be an invalid. And Christ comes up to him. And he sees also a man who is alone. Did you notice that? When he asks him, hey, do you want to be healed? His answer is, implies, man... If I had people here who could help me get into the pool, I would be a lot better off. I don't even have anybody. I don't have friends. I don't have even on this day of rest when they don't have work. I don't have people here to come and help me to get into the pool. And so Jesus comes up to this man who is old, who is sick, this man who is lonely, this man who had sin that had caused uh, in some capacity this sickness to come upon him. And Jesus also finds him hopeless. That when he asks him, do you want to be healed? Instead of saying excitedly, yes, I want to be healed. I, I, I want so badly to be healed. He just sort of writes it off as an impossibility. He, he says, man, I have nobody. Whenever the waters get stirred up, these younger folks, the people with friends, they get to the pool first and I'm out of luck. And he, he's jaded. He's hardened. He's hopeless. And Jesus comes to him. He, he picks him out and he comes to him and says, do you want to be healed? And this man, he doesn't maybe even know who Jesus is. He's not expecting much of this conversation, I'm guessing. Um, but he, he expects nothing to happen. And Jesus, in just a few words, speaks healing into this man's body. He says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And we may read stories like this and get so used to it that our eyes just go right by that and forget this actually happened. Like there was a man who had laid there, maybe he had people who sometimes would take him back to a house or something, but he had laid there probably for almost 40 years, unable to walk, and had given up all hope that it could happen, his muscles had probably long since shriveled up, and Jesus, who he's never even met, comes up to him and speaks a couple words, and he is able to stand up and pick up this bed he's laid on for so long and start walking. Jesus did what this pool could never do for him. He did what no doctor had been able to do for him. He did in a moment what nothing and no one had been able to do in this man's life. He fixed what was broken in his body. 
And we ought to have, I want us to have confidence as God's people that this same Christ who spoke these words and made this man's body be able to walk again, that he still can do miraculous things. That he is alive and well in heaven and can still speak words and have people perform things and do things that we thought were impossible that have long since escaped him. He can still do those things. We ought to pray with confidence and ask with confidence and with hopefulness that he can intervene in any broken situation. But I, and I say this often, and we say this often as a church, but we also want to remind you he doesn't always do that. I don't want you to miss the fact that there was a multitude of invalids. And how many of them did he tell to get up and walk? One. There was a multitude still of people who were there with their sickness, with their illness, and Jesus left them there. And the fact that even in our day, in our time, that he doesn't fix everything is not a sign of his weakness. It's not a sign that he's incapable of it. It is a sign that we are called to trust him. We're called in our limited wisdom to trust his infinite wisdom that he knows when healings are proper and when they're appropriate and when he sees fit to do them, he will do them. But we ought to pray with confidence and expectation that he still can, even when he chooses not to. And we also have confidence that he can intervene in situations that have long since seemed hopeless to us. In relationships that have been, quote-unquote, dead for years or decades. Or in situations and inabilities that we've had or things we've been struggling with for year upon year upon year. We ought to have confidence he can speak a word and intervene and to bring healing. He can do it in any situation. And he can work miracles in people who are undeserving and unexpected. This man, if you would have asked, man, who deserves healing the most? To the average person around there, he probably would have been low on the list based on, I'm guessing, on his reputation and whatnot. But he is the one Christ picked on purpose to show, I want to heal him. I want to fix him. There is nobody who's beyond my reach, Christ would say. There's nobody who's beyond my power. Nobody's bad enough for me to keep them at arm's length. I will come to anyone and I can heal them and I And we ought to have confidence and not write people off as being undeserving of God's work of fixing them and healing them, but to realize that he can work in anyone. And so Christ has the power to fix what's broken. He demonstrates that with this man who, by this point in the story, has picked up his mat and is walking around. Uh, He has shown he can fix anything. He has the power. But I think you see uh, in this next section of the story, what I would emphasize that Christ alone has the power to fix what is broken. That Christ alone has the power to fix what is broken. Because Jesus seemingly withdraws. You see that down in verse 13. He withdraws into the crowd uh, right after he's healed this guy to the point where he doesn't even, the guy doesn't even know who Jesus is or what his name was. They didn't even have time to talk like that. He withdraws. But this other group of people come now and address the same man. Uh, John calls them the Jews. In verse 10, that's what John would call the religious leaders of the day. You see it happen in this gospel a lot. These men now come to this man, probably, I'm guessing, because a scene has started. This guy who everybody had seen for decades laying on this mat is now up and walking. And it's causing quite the stir and quite the scene. And all these people, I'm guessing, are coming around to to celebrate and talk to this guy. And what in the world just happened? And the, the Jewish leaders then come up to speak to him. And whereas Jesus encountered a maybe paralyzed, hopeless, jaded man and spoke life and healing into him, 
these guys come up to a guy who has just been given the ability to walk, who could not walk for almost 40 years, and the first thing they say to him is, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. That is the first thing that they're recorded as saying to this guy. Talk about throwing cold water on a fire that Jesus is seeking to start. They are trying everything they can to douse it. They are just bring. They are where Jesus is bringing life and power and healing. They are bringing rules. They are bringing dead rules and trying to impose them upon this guy. Where Jesus was trying to free him, they're trying to put shackles on him. That is what they are doing. That's what they're. They're frustrated. It seems almost when like. What are you doing? This is the Sabbath. As if he forgot about it. Everybody would have known it was the Sabbath. He, he would have known that, been aware, well aware of it. But they come and they say, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. This is what, I want us to understand, not be too presumptuous as, as if we're above this. I want us to understand why the Sabbath was a big deal to them. Why that was their inclination to say, hey, we have rules, we have laws. It wasn't just things they had made up. God was the one who instituted the Sabbath. It was his idea. He was the one who, if you read in Exodus 20, part of the Ten Commandments, if you've learned those or memorized those, it was him, God himself, who told people to honor the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. That, that it was something that he instituted, that for his people at least, God wanted them to have this rhythm uh, in a week, a seven-day week. He wanted them to have this rhythm of six days of work and one day of rest. Six days of work, one day of rest. And God wasn't just pulling that out of air. He was modeling it. We see a few times in Scripture. He was modeling that after his work in creating the world. If you read back at the beginning of Genesis, God created on six days, created different things, different days, and it says on the seventh day that he rested from his work of creation. Uh, and that, that's why now he has, for his people, set up this expectation of six days of work, one day of rest, six and one, six and one. We tend in our culture to think of the weekend. Uh, we think, we often, even though we see it on our calendars, we don't think of it this way, we think the week starts tomorrow. That's when my work week starts, or that's when school starts, or whatever. Like the week we think starts Monday, and I work maybe five days, or whatever my my situation is. Maybe I work into Saturday on six days, but we often think of five and two, five and two, and it's not. It's sort of like the bookends of the week. We get Sunday off often, and we get Saturday off. They would have had a very different expectation. They would have had six and one. Sunday to Friday we work, and then our Saturday is a different. That's what they would call their Sabbath day. And God had given them law. He had given them commands to, to withhold from their typical work on the Sabbath day. It was a gift that God had given to his people. Do you remember Jesus himself, even in other places, said that the Sabbath was made for man? not man for the Sabbath. That means it was a good gift that God was giving. He wanted to teach his people, look, work hard on six days, rest, and remember I'm in control. I will care for you. I'll provide for you on the seventh day. Spend time with me. Focus on me. Set aside your typical labors. It was to be this gift to remind his people how small they were and how needful they were for him, that they couldn't just work hard enough and put in enough hours and energy and and time into fixing things and making sure everything worked fine and that they had everything they needed. He was forcing them and causing them to pause week by week by week to remember that he would care for them. But what was a gift of God, they had started to turn into a burden. 
They had, by this time in Jesus' day, they had developed 39 different categories of work that were forbidden on the Sabbath day. That, that they had all these different, you can't do this, you can't do this, this type of work is forbidden, this is out of bounds, this is out of bounds, this is out of bounds. And carrying things from one place to another was one of those categories. It was one of the things that they said, you cannot do that kind of work. And what it, you see here is that what had been given as a, by, as a gift by God to his people had been turned into this cold law that did, gave no life at all. It was something that was just laying a burden upon people and not breathing faith and life in them. It was just a, a means to control them and to manage their behavior. And that's what these people are bringing to this man. When Jesus was seeking to free him and change him and give him life, they were seeking to just bring cold law, cold rules, to control him. And I, I wish I had more time to elaborate on this, but I, I, thankfully I have uh, the sermon from last Sunday to refer you to. Our, our uh, student ministries director, Jake Osborne, preached a wonderful sermon last Sunday. If, if you weren't here, many of you were out of town. Uh, I would encourage you to listen to that. It was from the book of Colossians. He taught very well about how law and rules do not change us. Like, they cannot change us. They, they can give us this appearance of growing in godliness. I can, like, press myself or other people into this box of behavior, but it's doing nothing to change the heart. Just setting laws and rules and rules and rules upon people or upon yourself does absolutely nothing to change you. Law cannot change you, but Christ can. He is the one alone who can bring healing. So I'd encourage you to listen to that. It was good for my soul when starting off the year, and I think it would be good in yours. But we need to remember that law doesn't change. Law doesn't give life. Christ gives life. He's the one who can heal. And we see that demonstrated in the story. These Jewish leaders do nothing to advance this man. They do nothing to spur him to godliness. They're just kind of a side story. It's Jesus who is speaking physical healing into this man's body. And we're going to see next, I think, speaking life into his soul as well. Christ is the one who is fixing him. And so as this conversation unfolds with him and the Jewish leaders, they are telling him, you can't do this. And essentially they're asking, why are you doing this? And he says... This man who healed me, he told me to, to get up and pick up my bed and walk. Like, he's the one uh, that told me to. And quickly you see that the Jewish leaders really aren't interested in this guy. That you see that they, as soon as he says that, they realize they have a bigger fish to fry. Like, they have a bigger person to go after because they realize that maybe they're suspecting that it's Jesus uh, because of his reputation. They knew somebody's telling people to go around just taking the Sabbath for granted and just doing whatever he sees fit. Who is this guy that told you that? And so they're totally seeing this guy just as a pawn, uh, this sick man as a pawn to get to the bigger fish that they soon find out is Jesus. But at this time, he doesn't know. He says, hey, I I don't know who he is. Uh, He withdrew into the crowd. And we pick up in verse 14, and this is where I would emphasize this, that Christ alone has the power to fix what is broken within us. You see in verse 14 that Jesus comes back to this guy, doesn't he? Like he at first had uh, healed him in a miraculous way and given him this ability to walk. And it seems maybe like he's kind of pulling a Superman on him and going back to being Clark Kent and not wanting people to know who he is and what's going on. But you see by what John records, Jesus wants him to know it was him. He wants everybody to know that it was him. For whatever reason, he decided to wait 
and do it this way. But he goes and Jesus finds him in verse 14. And it's in the temple. I think that's neat that this man was in or around the temple. Uh, But Jesus goes and finds him. And he celebrates with him momentarily. He says, see, you're well. He, he's celebrating with him, reminding him, hey, I did that for you. Like, you, you, you're still able to walk. Uh, you're well. But then Jesus turns and points right into this man's soul. And it could feel like he's doing the same thing that those Jewish leaders did. Because he says, sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus knew, I think he had insight into this man's life to know that his sickness had in some way been tied to sin in his life. Whether it was some sin that he had had as a young man that was really grievous or whether it was something that was ongoing. There was some way that his sin had been tied with his sickness. And when Jesus comes up to him in this temple and talks to him, he is demonstrating that he cares for this man's soul. He's not just using him as a pawn to put on some show of, look what I can do. But he cares about this man's soul because he is warning him that something worse can happen to you. You think it's terrible to have laid up for 38 years and not been able to walk and see everybody else thriving and living and doing the things that you want. You think that's bad. You think that's awful. I, I think he would acknowledge it is. It's horrible. But he's saying there is something worse that could happen to you. Jesus can see into eternity and he knows full well that someday he himself is going to judge every person, including everyone in this room, that he is going to judge us and either send us to an eternity in hell or he is going to receive us into his eternal kingdom that that will be joyful and full of life forever. And he sees this man. He knows he is a sinner. He knows he is someone whose body works now but whose soul is still broken whose heart is still probably bent away from the Lord, and he's saying, you are heading to something worse than being paralyzed. And I would tell us in this room, if you think of the worst thing you've been through in your life, and I I know full well there are things some of you in this room could tell me that would haunt me, like things that are horrible that you've experienced, things that have been painful beyond what words can even describe. But Jesus would tell you there is something worse that can happen. As hard as it is to hear, there is something worse that can happen to you and that will happen to you if you don't have your soul healed, if you don't have your sinful heart changed by the Lord. And Jesus would want us to hear just like this man, something worse can come, but I want you, Jesus would say, to have life. Like I want you to have eternal life with me. And he wants you to know that, that you don't have to suffer that fate that is coming to you, that, that he went to a cross and was crucified for your sins. He took them upon himself so that you could be freed from their penalty, that you could be freed from the judgment that should be coming to you for eternity. And just as Jesus asked this man, do you want to be healed? I would ask you today, do you want to be healed in your soul? Like, do you want your heart to be healed, your sin-sick heart to be healed? Because if you do, Christ, he doesn't heal everybody's physical sickness that asks for it. But if we come to him in faith and repentance, if, if we say, man, I don't want to sin anymore. I'm coming to you in faith. Please forgive me. He says he will heal your soul. Like, he will change your heart. I can tell you that with absolute certainty that he will not turn down that prayer. That if you ask him for forgiveness, if you ask him for healing for your soul, he will give it, and he can give it. 
Uh, he, he, I could tell you I forgive you, and anybody could tell you, hey, you have forgiveness. You have, uh, like you have God's favor upon you, but Christ has demonstrated his ability to bring healing to your heart. He alone can heal what's broken in your sinful heart and in mine. I'm grateful that Christ came back to this man because if you're anything like me, I, I know the human condition enough to know when the Lord resolves some of our problems, the things we're so desperately asking him to fix, uh, often we forget him after he fixes them. After, after he intervenes and sometimes does miraculous things to, to bring healing in our life or to restore our bodies or bring health to our loved ones or to provide for needs that we thought there is no way I see through this. Oftentimes after he does that, we just totally forget him. We just go on about our life as if he's some surgeon who I desperately needed. And now that that surgeon's done uh, the surgery, I don't need her anymore. I don't need him anymore. I'm just going to go back to my life. That's often how we treat Christ. But Christ came back to this man to show him, you need a lot more than legs that work. You need me. You need me to be your Savior. And Christ would say the same to us. It's kind of him. It is merciful of him when he fixes our circumstances, when he miraculously intervenes. But if he does not change our hearts and souls, then we are no better off. And so we see that Christ has the power. Christ alone has the power to fix what's broken inside of us. He did it, I think, for this man. We don't know exactly what took place in him. Um, but, but he has the power to heal what's broken even within our hearts, not just and this story, though, culminates with the end of this, and this is going to lead into the next couple of weeks, this conversation Jesus has, or really just Jesus unloading a bunch of theology onto them. Um, but before he gets to that, you see what leads to that is that this happened on the Sabbath day. That's what they really are worked up about. That's what these Jewish leaders are really worked up about. Uh, verse 15 says that the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. Maybe he did that for bad reasons. I don't know. Maybe he wanted them to get off his back. I don't know. Maybe Jesus told him to do that because Jesus wasn't exactly hiding. Uh, he, he, I think he was starting to want to know people to know what he was doing. He, I think Jesus is trying to stir up the pot here. And so I don't think he minded them knowing it was him. But as soon as these Jewish leaders' suspicions are confirmed, I think that this was Jesus that is telling this man to break our Sabbath rules, it says that they began persecuting Jesus in verse 16. Do you notice that? It says this is why they were persecuting him, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then Jesus says this really mysterious thing that's going to give way to the conversation that follows. He says it in verse 17. It says that Jesus answered them. This is how John records it. Yours may say something slightly different, but he says, My father is working until now, and I am working. That seems really odd <laughs> the first time that, that I read it or maybe that you read it. And yours may translate it slightly different. But the, a couple points you see that they pick up on. One is that he calls him my father. Did you pick up on that? That, have, that comes back around in verse 18. They're mad that he's even calling God his own father. So he says, my father is working until now. And he says, and I am working. And what, what I think Jesus is saying here is this. If you think about what happened at the beginning of creation, or the whole expanse of it, we're told that God worked on six days, creating, 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 and on the seventh day, he rested from his work of creation. There is no way that as you read the word of God, or as you just even think about it, 
that God ceased doing anything on the seventh day, right? Like the universe is still existing. Uh, the rivers are, and the Garden of Eden were still flowing. The flowers were still growing. The Adam and Eve were still functioning. I mean, every, everything was still operating. God was still at work in a sense. He wasn't creating all these new things, but he was still working every second of every day, even the first Sabbath day, even every Saturday that came since then up to this time. And Jesus, they knew that. Jewish leaders would have acknowledged that in their day, that, hey, God is always in some sense working and upholding the universe and and doing good things. And Jesus is saying, God the Father is doing that. Even on your Saturday, God the Father is working still. And he says a parallel statement, and I'm working on the Sabbath day. And he is essentially saying, that's what gives way to this conversation that follows. What God the Father can do, I can do. Like the one who is upholding the universe, the one who is working every second of every day. If he is working, I have freedom to work as well as his son, as God the son. And this flares them up. Like they know full well, it may seem weird and mysterious to us what he's saying, but they know full well what he's saying because it goes from them persecuting him in verse 16 to they want now to kill him in verse 18 because he is starting to say stuff about himself that he is God, that he is equal with God the Father and that he has full freedom even though they do not As his peers, he has full freedom to do anything that he sees fit, anything that God the Father tells him to do, even on the Sabbath day. And they get furious about it to the point that they want to kill him. But this should have been something that, that they saw. And as we read it now, it should be something that we see, that it is amazing that Jesus did this. And he performed many miracles on the Sabbath. He did, it's like he did it on purpose. He was working on the Sabbath to show, hey, while the rest of you are remembering your smallness, while the rest of you are remembering your absolute inability to provide what you need, While the rest of you are laying like this guy, laying on a mat, unable to do anything truly for yourself, I'm going to work. And I have the power to work. I have the power to fix everything in you that is wrong. And I have the power to provide everything that you need. While you're resting, I want you to remember I'm working. And I can provide every need of your soul. And it should have been instructed to them, man, he has power. He he is God and can do anything to fix anything. But they looked at him like a lunatic and just thought he was just making himself equal with God like some crazy man. That's what they thought, and they want to put him to death. And as we read through John, we'll see that eventually they succeed. They do put him to death. It's a, in the same city of Jerusalem, a few years after this, at the end of their work week on a Friday afternoon, they have Christ put to death on a cross, and they feel like their work is complete that week, so they can go to their Sabbath rest and have it off of their mind. But what was also happening at the end of that Friday was that Christ's lifelong work was complete. That his work of obeying the Father perfectly from the manger to the cross was now complete, and he had obeyed perfectly. But he suffered on the cross and took all of our sin, all of our weakness, all of our brokenness upon himself on that cross and was put to death for it. His work was complete as well, and he was laid in the tomb. And all 
all day long on that Sabbath day, he rested in the tomb, more motionless even than this man had been on his mat in the tomb, dead as dead can be, having his work be complete to save us. But God raised him up on the first day of the new week. On that Sunday morning early, he raised him up, and he walked out of that tomb just like this man got up and walked. Jesus got up out of that tomb and walked out never to die again. And God was showing us this isn't just a crazy man making himself equal with God, just imagining fanciful things about himself, like he has all these powers and abilities. God was showing he is my son. Like he is equal with me, and he can do anything. He can save anyone. He can heal anyone. You all need to listen to him and bow your knee to him, and he will receive you. God was showing us once and for all that Jesus was all-powerful, that it wasn't just stuff he was imagining in his head or making up for himself. He was showing us that he is still alive today, and he can heal. He alone can heal anything and everything that is broken within us.